everyone, and welcome to the 19th Roundtable Discussion produced by Transparent Media Truth. This episode was recorded on September 28, 2020. In this episode, we revisit the devastating effects the opioid crisis is having on the pain management community. While we often hear of the rising tide of heroin abuse across the country and the pill mills that feed it, we are much less exposed to the blowback the drug war causes to those legitimately suffering from chronic pain in need of medically prescribed opiates for pain management that allows them to lead functional lives. Not only does the DEA intervene in the doctor-patient relationship if prescriptions are deemed too high dose, but there is a concerted and corrupt effort to treat long-term pain sufferers as addicts, force tapering many into withdrawal while pushing lucrative rehabilitation drugs like methadone and suboxone. Today, we are joined by Janelle Elgaway, host of Conspiracies Against Wellness and The Doctor's Corner on YouTube, as well as Claudia Mirandi, a patient advocate and organizer of the Don't Punish Pain rallies. More information about Claudia can be found at www.don'tpunishpainrally.com. The two doctors on our panel today include Dr. Arnold Feldman, a retired anesthesiologist with firsthand knowledge of the over-policing of pain management doctors as well as Dr. Thomas Klein, who has been treating pain patients since 2009 and is now helping to organize the National Pain Council to bring awareness of the issue to government regulators and legislators in Washington, D.C. If you are interested in learning more or are interested in making a donation, you can email patientsunite14 at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to producer Rob Rubin of Transparent Media Truth for putting all of us together. Find out more about TMT and all the roundtable discussions at the Transparent Media Truth YouTube channel or www.transparentmediatruth.com on the web. Rob is on Twitter at TransparentMED1. I am the host and editor for the program. My name is Doug McKenty. You can catch my show, The Shift with Doug McKenty, on Facebook and YouTube or on the web at www.theshiftnow.com. I'm also on Twitter at McKenty. Wherever and however you are listening, please like, subscribe, or share this information with others. You are the primary distributors of this podcast. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and I'm happy to introduce Janelle Elgaway, Claudia Mirandi, and Drs. Arnold Feldman and Thomas Klein to this edition of the Roundtable Discussions. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this, the 19th Roundtable Discussion produced by Transparent Media Truth. Today, we're having our second episode about the tapers crisis. It's something that is almost completely not covered by the mainstream media, uh, but yet it's a big issue for tens of millions of people in the United States. And so we're happy to have this conversation today to try to educate people about what's going on. Uh, It seems a lot of people, for those of you that don't know about this, uh, a lot of people are getting sort of hoovered up into the drug war who are legitimate pain patients, and it's becoming more and more difficult for people to get the pain medications that they need uh, as the system tries to crack down on doctors, of course, giving out pain medication uh, to people who uh, are not in need and trying to use these drugs recreationally. Um, but we desperately need to come to some kind of a, a, a policy 
here where uh, people who actually need it can get the drugs that they need in order to live a pain-free and functional existences. So I'm joined today by Janelle Elgaway, Dr. Thomas Klein, uh, Claudia Mirandi, and Dr. Arnold Feldman. Uh, they're all professionals in this field or either, either uh, medical professionals or uh, pain patients in need and are all struggling with this issue. So I'm going to hand this off to uh, Janelle to get us started here. And uh, maybe if we could just go around the table and uh, explain a little bit about our relationship to the issue and, and uh, give an overall perspective about what's going on. So Janelle, you want to kick it in? Sure. Thank you so much, Doug, Rob, and Transparent Media Truth for giving us this platform. Um, today, we're going to just talk about the... So the AMA recently reported that there was 37% decrease in opioid prescribing from 2014 to 2019. And amid an ongoing drug overdose crisis, the goal was to reduce the harms associated with opioid pain medications. But there is no justification for forced tapers of patients dealing with rare, painful, and incurable diseases and cancer patients. Yet here we are. So before we go into this... Um, Ms. Claudia Morandi, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? A sure thing. I'm the founder of the Don't Punish Pain Rally Organization and also the Doctor Patient Forum. I organize rallies uh, every few months for pain patients who have been affected by the horrific 2016 CDC guidelines. And myself and Dr. Feldman, we have a nonprofit profit, the Doctor Patient Forum, where we are called in to advocate for patients who have been affected. And we organize, we rally again, October 7th. Uh, so check don'tpunishpainrally.com to find a rally nearby. Uh, Dr. Feldman, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I happen to be a, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not sure I like the word pain physician, but a physician that treated chronic painful illnesses and acute painful illnesses for um, 40 years, if you can believe that. I graduated medical school in 1980. It became immediately apparent to me that a needed specialty. Before the specialty of pain management existed, I was treating pain patients uh, as an anesthesiologist. I have been through the, the, um, the dark years, which we are in now, the dark ages of pain medicine. I have been through the, the golden years, which were really not so golden in the 90s and early 2000s, and I was in the what I would call the transformative years, which was the mid to late 80s, where people were just becoming aware that you know we're not doing the greatest job in America in treating chronic painful illnesses, actually throughout the civilized and uncivilized world. So I've been from from home plate to first base and back again a couple of times, and forward and reverse. And now I am because of circumstances which we can all discuss later. Uh, we are now all targets. I, I feel like we are all targets, and it's time for us to get into the war, and that's why I'm here. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dr. Feldman. Uh, Dr. Thomas Klein, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I'm basically a primary care physician with an interest over the past four years in people with rare painful diseases. There's lots of rare diseases, not all of them are painful, and chronic painful diseases. And I have had a practice with 34 people, all of whom have severe diseases, none of whom received 
therapy or treatment from any physician uh, to get into my practice. She had to be denied by at least five to 10 physicians. The rare painful diseases is an interesting group. We know from the government there's 10 million people taking opiates every single day. That's 3% of the population. So here in North Carolina, that's 300,000 people. Nobody's ever asked who they are. Dr. Dowell, who's the chief medical officer for the CDC branch in charge of this stuff, uh, when she was on a, a YouTube video, she says, these are people with low back pain and hip pain. It's obvious she's never been outside the building there in Atlanta because these are people with serious rare painful diseases. And that's my specialty. People in pain, I give them pain medicine. And if it works, I continue. If it doesn't work, we stop. It's kind of simple. It's like any other medicine we prescribe, but somehow this medicine has become demonized. So we'll talk about that a little bit. I do have the AMA uh, uh, corrections here that we can talk about later for the CDC. Thank you, Dr. Klein. Um, and I'll just share a little bit about myself. I've been a 27-year uh, patient uh, dealing with rare and painful diseases. Um, uh, when I started advocating in 2016, uh, I started a, uh, a network. It was called 360 Network, and it had several shows. Claudia was, had a show. Dr. Klein and I had one, uh, and there was a few others. Um, actually, we are about to start uh, the Doctor's Corner back up again. Um, I'm hoping in mid to late October, so... Please watch out for that. Um, and but you know, I'm just here fighting the good fight and uh, working with whoever I can to try and make sure that um, patients and doctors are protected, uh, especially during this horrible time. So, so let's uh, jump right into what we uh, th the main topic, and that's tapering and forced tapering. I mean, are there any benefits for patients to be tapered or forced tapered off pain medications? Who would like to take that? Janelle, can I butt in for just a second and, and sure. ask that you really describe what tapering is? Because Rob mentioned it to me initially, and I like didn't understand. This is this is when you know people uh, are on a certain amount of pain medication, and then you're trying to kind of wean yourself off of it, or you're being forced to to take a half dose or something like that. Can you just provide like an overview so people understand that well, concept actually, of tapering? Dr. Thomas Klein would probably be best at explaining tapers, if you, if you don't okay. mind. Yeah, yeah, if I fell in love with the CDC unauthorized guidelines, what I would do, uh, they said that there's a 90 milligram maximum that was made up. And when they submitted that to the FDA, the FDA said, oh my God, no, we're not going to do that. They published it anyway. And now in four years, we've ruined the lives of several million people. Mm -hmm. um, so here's- here, here, is very low, is that what you're saying? So the, the, here's the way it works. So you, you've had this terrible, awful disease and your life has been restored and you're taking uh, medicine every day and it's working great. But when we add up the numbers, it's more than 90. Mm -hmm. So now I'm the big believer in the CDC. You say, well, Janelle, you know, I know it's working real well, but I'm just going to give you a half. 
right. because the CDC told me to. And if I don't do it, the DEA is going to come and arrest me or they'll take my medical license. So we have to do it. Sorry. Here's a prescription for half as much. So you just go home and deal with it. And I'll see you next month. And we're going to cut it down even more. It's interesting that 90 milligrams is a dose you would give a large dog. Mm -hmm. It is a dose you would give a 10-year-old. So where did this come from? Who made up this 90 milligram cutoff? The FDA says you you can give as much as you want. Uh, My medical board says you can give as much as you want here in North Carolina. There's no limit. You just give it until it works. It's like insulin. There's no maximum minus. You just give it until it works. So, and, and people develop tolerance, right? So over time, you know, they're likely to need a, a bit more. And it's up to your relationship with your doctor and your individual situation in order to discover, you know, what, what the amount that works for you is. That's correct. On- we just go ahead, you know. Well, it really depends on the patient. I mean, like, for example, myself, I don't take the same amount of pain medications every day. So um, my level of what MMEs, uh, morphine milligram equivalents that I take daily, uh, I haven't had to really go up once I found my level of what I needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm able to stay there. But, uh, but I mean, sometimes you could also switch to a different medication, which will help as well. Uh, is there anything else that I'm missing? Uh, if I could chime in. Yeah. I look at it. I look at it two ways. The first thing you have to consider with any medication, not not necessarily opiates, any medication you can you can prescribe or that is prescribable, you have to, as the physician, the patient too, to a certain degree, measure risk benefit ratio. What's the risk of putting this substance into your body, either you know by pill, by shot, by cream, whatever you use. And what is the benefit that you derive from this? Okay, that is with insulin, with antibiotics, with seizure medications, benzodiazepines, opiates, aspirin, cardi, anything. Okay, so when we, or when I, I only speak to myself, when I prescribed opiates, I, I had to be cognizant of, of two things. Obviously, risk-benefit ratio, and also men and women with blue jackets with letter, yellow letters on called DEA agents, right? And then I, I the DEA agents have 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 deputized a number of agencies to to do their their bidding, and those agencies are number one, the state medical boards. Number two, somehow or other, they conscripted the DEA. I mean, the the CDC into this. So, as the physician, there. So we go back to the physician's office. So the physician. You should always measure risk benefit, but then you have to add this third thing, which is your own personal survival, right? A good physician should always measure risk benefit. So in other words, if it's more risky for Mary Jo to take 120 milligrams of morphine than 90, you might suggest to Mary Jo, let's slowly decrease this to 90 and see what happens is, you know, without shocking Mary Joe going from 120 to zero. But when you have a DEA agent visit you, you say, you know, I'm getting everybody less than 90. And a lot of doctors are saying, I'm not going to prescribe any more at all. So it's like this. You have a gun to your head. You're going to make a certain decision. You're going to make it faster. And the question is, is the CDC guideline a guideline 
Well, they would say it's only a guideline. But I would say, no, it is a weapon. It's been weaponized. And so there's no, there's no reasonable choice for a practicing physician anymore. So meaning you can't ignore the, 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 the EA, which used to be rare to see a doctor prosecuted. It's not so rare but, anymore. Well, so that's how you have and to these look guidelines. At this. I mean, you're right; they are being weaponized. What's crazy, though, is they're supposed to be just that guidelines, like you know, hey, this is a suggestion of what you should maybe be doing. But yet, why would somebody like myself have to go and get a bill sponsored against the guideline if it's not a law? So I feel like the government is using these guidelines instead of creating them into laws and just essentially that they become laws then. Well, just before we got on this telephone conversation, I was on the phone with a former Louisiana state senator who's a lawyer, and he was screaming at me saying, you know, you need to do this and you need to do that and you need to do this. Well, number one, what he doesn't understand is the things he was telling me, basically, hire a lawyer to sue all these people. Well, you know, you and I know that costs a lot of money. Number two is what forum are you going to do these things in? Are you going to sue them in the state of Louisiana, North Carolina, Dr. Klein, Rhode Island? Uh, you know, and are we going to spend the rest of our lives in court, which we can? I mean, these things, the legal system is slow. So essentially, the the taper, the forced tapering of, of individuals, in my opinion, has to be handled in number one, the led by the legislature, number two, by the court of public opinion, which is which they are intimately joined, meaning voters is what makes these and money is what makes these legislators move. The court system is there for us, but it has to be a three-pronged approach. So let me ask, I mean, are there benefits uh, to taper a patient or force taper a patient? And what are those? And is it ethical? Well, Um, I'll just tell you my, and then I'll shut up. (laughs) If the patient is at risk for serious side effects, of course, there's a benefit to taper the medication. But that goes back to the very simple tenets of pharmacologic use of medications is measure the risk and the benefit. That's between the doctor and the patient, usually, or it used to be. Number two, you know, if I was practicing today, I probably would tell a patient, look, we're going to get you down to 90 morphine milliequivalents because you have to make a choice. Do you want me to survive as your doctor? And because you have a difficult time finding anyone. Those are not two great choices to make, but I think that's where we are. Dr. Klein, did you want to say something? Um, you ever hear of the garbage scowl story? No. No. Uh, in New York, uh, this man had a towing business and he towed garbage out of New York City. And he was on his way down to Wilmington, North Carolina, where he was going to dump it by contract. Somebody ran out and said, hey, you know, you got medical waste on there. <laughs> they saw some bedpans, right? Some reporter from from North Carolina. So they refused. So he he gets his tug and he hauls his boat down to um, Florida. And they said, we heard you had medical waste on there. We're not taking it. 
So then he takes it to Louisiana. <laughs> then he took it down to Belize and he finally hauls it back. And they finally put some inspectors on there. And guess what? No medical waste. Hmm. So what's happened is um, the word opioid is always used by itself. You never read opioid pain medicine. So you can create the illusion of evil by just using the word opioid. So the big question is, if the DEA is going to come prancing into your office, um, what is the government afraid of? The DEA, by the way, are the police. They don't operate on their own any more than our police here in Raleigh operate on their own. They work for the city. DEA works for Department of Justice. They are the enforcement wing of the Department of Justice. So the Department of Justice gets its marching orders from the Attorney General, who gets his marching orders from the President of the United States. So the President of the United States said doctors are handing out this stuff and they are causing problems. It's causing overdose deaths and addiction. Medical waste on the garbage scowl. That's not true. But if you try to tell people it's not true, they don't like that mm -hmm. because people don't like to be it's not true because they've believed it. So we have believed this since 1900. It goes way, way back. Our first legislation was in 1909 and then in 1915 with the Harrison Act. Uh, and then all along the way, there have been, we have had this in our fabric for a long time that these are dangerous drugs. So if we sat down with the attorney general, he said, what are you afraid of? Well, I don't think they would know what to say. Can I, can I uh, just interject really quickly? Because sure. what comes to my mind is, I mean, people obviously are worried about addiction. So, so when, you're putting, when you're putting someone on a pain medication like this, do you have some percentage of patients that just want more? You know, I mean, do you, you're going to run into this addiction. <laughs> Gee, Doc, I love this stuff. Can I have yeah, some more? Yeah, right. So, so you know, and, and theoretically, at least, that's what the government is trying to well, they need to look at their own figures. Um, the government agency, uh, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Agency, only in the United States we have a giant agency called Substance Abuse Agency. Mm -hmm. um, their numbers are about 800,000 heroin addicts. That seems like a lot of people, you know, worth preventing. But when you divide it by the population of 325 million, it only turns out to be four people per thousand. So that kind of surprised me when I first looked at it. I thought, you know, I kind of thought there'd be a lot more. Mm -hmm. So it must be increasing because we're just, we're just prescribing so many opiates. Then I was doing some historical research in 1920, 200,000 addicts, heroin addicts, divided by the population in 1920, four people per thousand. So the number of addicts has not changed. So for an epidemiologist, or a microbe hunter, we call them. The only assumption you can make is this has got to be a genetic disease. Wow, it's real simple. You can't have um, a steady every year prevalence of a disease through environment. If you plot the number of people with cocaine addiction, it bounces all around. Hmm. See, it's, it's, it has to do with the substance. Heroin addiction, if you talk to heroin addicts, you know how long it takes them to get addicted? First pill. Yeah. First pill. So wait a minute. 
see, the assumption is the longer you take this stuff or the higher the dose you take. No. If you talk to people that got addicted, they got addicted on one teeny weeny Vicodin tablet. So, and then you look at the brain researchers and it's pretty clear and they kind of know what it is. And very soon there's going to be a genetic test for addiction. It's taken a long time to develop because the number of abnormalities is high. It's, it's technically difficult. And then we're going to be able to test people and say, you do not have the genes. Therefore, you're not going to become addicted. Well, and also now, the number of addiction has not gone up in what, 100 years, you said, Dr. Klein? Well, at least 19, yeah, 100 years, yeah, 1920. So, so if it's I, the same all the time. So then I, I read the other day that and there was, oh, I don't know, billions of addicts and then you divide it by the world population. And guess what it came out to be? Almost fell over four people per thousand. Hmm. Mexico well, City. Know, I re- Go ahead, Joel. No, well, what's so crazy, though, is, okay, so we have, what, um, maybe two million addicts in the United States around one, there? One, yeah. Okay, one But yet, how much money are we throwing towards addiction? Well, uh, wait, here, I just wrote a little tweet uh, today. I said, if you want to stop deaths on the streets and you want to stop arrests of doctors and you want to give stop uh, uh, taking medicines away from people, all you have to do is instead of treating 20% of people with addiction disease, you treat 100%. That's what they did in Switzerland and Portugal, and, and they just claim there's no more crime, mm-hmm. and there's no, no more rationing of medicines. I mean, you know, I wrote, uh, if I write a prescription for 300 oxycodone, and by the way, oxycodone has to be given every four hours. That's why there's so many pills. No other medicine that I can think of, we prescribe every four hours, you know? So anyway, you need a lot. So I could give a prescription to somebody for 300 pills, and the street value of 300 pills is $9,000. Now, you could come to me once a month with your fake x-rays and fool me, and and uh, so I just give you your monthly stuff, and, you know, there's there's we don't have x-ray vision. You can't see back. And all the studies, we frequently don't show it. So $9,000 times 12, what's that? <laughs> that could be your annual income, just going to the doctor once a month. Right. So the power of how much money it's worth. But the key thing is, see, uh, if, if Janelle goes to the doctor's office and says, you know, I've got this chronic painful condition, and he says, oh, God, you're going to get addicted. All she has to say is, I've already been on these, and I did not get addicted. So as soon as you take one pill or a few and you don't fly off to the moon, you will never, ever become addicted. Now, that's a simple fact, but nobody wants to believe it because it's an inconvenient truth. All the people in pain clinics are already on their medicines. And if they're not currently addicted, and you know what? Addicted people don't go to pain clinics or pharmacies or doctors. Then all of the people in these pain clinics will never become addicted. Now I wrote that in a tweet, and my medical board didn't like it. <laughs> and they're in the process of doing some very nasty things to me because they're afraid of the stuff. If it'd be nice if you could sit down with people and say, "What are you afraid of?" And uh, I used the Socratic method, which is a pain in the ass. Uh, which is to continue to ask questions, and people really hate that. 
So I had this young woman the other day on the phone and she was writing an article. And so she agreed to do it. And so she has a brother who's an addict. And so I said, okay, what are you afraid of? And what it boiled down to was um, people are afraid of unpredictable behavior. And they think that people with addiction disease are unpredictable. And that's because they're real sneaky. And they're real sneaky because they're really not criminals. They don't go with guns and hold up places, beat up people. What they do is they steal from, you know, a sister or they'll go through your medicine cabinet or, you know, they'll um, they'll take things back to the store, you know, or they'll steal, uh, they'll shoplift and then take them back and get the money. Um, it, it's really kind of sad. I mean, there's, there's uh, 10 million people doing this. And what do we think? They all have bad behaviors. They've got, uh, you know, they've made poor choices. Oh, that was one of her answers that her family came up with. They felt like the brother had poor choices. Well, um, you know, you, you made a you made a comment that that there's a genetic predisposition towards addiction, and, and I, I believe that as well. Uh, but here's where I believe the problem. This is this is what my belief is, and I think you know, most of you will agree, at least partially. A very small group of people got together at some point or points in time, and this probably started around 2010, 2012. You always had the, the DEA. They've been around since 1973 and since the Harrison Narcotic Act, but doctors were generally not their major targets. But then you had a small group of people, and, and Andrew Kolodny was their fearless leader, governor, former governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie. And they got together, and, they, and this is what I believe happened. They saw the, the meteoric rise in revenues of the, of the Purdue company, which was owned you know, completely. It was not a public company by the Sackler family. Three guys. And they made $20 billion on the, on the production sale and education of physicians about the treatment of pain. And these guys got in league with the makers of Suboxone. And they said, we want that money. At the same time, there was this, this rise of the abuse of medications, not because not because the medications caused abuse, it's because the addicts saw that there was a change in attitude of the prescribers. And so essentially what, we're, what we have witnessed is the taking of $20 billion or more, and we're going to take it from here, and we're going to put it over here, and we don't really care what happens to the 10, 20, 30 million people with chronic pain or their physicians, as long as we get the money. Claudia, do you agree with that? Not only do I agree with it, but most about this whole opioid crisis, and I'm, I'm very vocal about it, is the dishonesty from doctors. You have Andrew Kalani, Anna Lemke, and all everybody who sits on the board of prop. They're all lining their pockets with gold. They're profiting off the crisis they created. And the dishonesty, it's mind-boggling to me. Um, so that, you know, yeah, I, I'm it's really- not just, 
it's not just a matter of do these drugs cause harm. I have been a pain practitioner for almost four decades. And, you know, I never had one patient overdose on opiates. Never. Now, I was lucky in that regard, but I was also pretty vigilant. But the point of the matter is this, to take the, the enlightenment that, that happened in the 90s and say these, these medications are good for no one is just a travesty. But I would tell you right now, you know, we're sitting having this discussion. I don't see any rescue coming anytime soon. I don't see, you know, the AMA June 16, 2020 letter was a, was, a, was, a, was, a, was a good thing. But we have got to take this further. And as far as tapering, which I know is the subject of this, you will see more and more and more of this. The more successes they have in taking doctors down, seizing their assets, and then dissuading the vast majority of them from prescribing because it's too risky, you know, it may not even be a taper. It may be you go to the office for your, your, your October visit and it says, this clinic is now closed. Right. That's, Janelle, me, that's what I foresee. Oh, go ahead. Janelle, can I say one thing? A lot sure. of so I organize doctors a separate place from the rallies, and a lot of doctors have reached out to me, and they believe that the crisis was caused by the fifth vital sign. Yeah. And I never know how to respond to a doctor because if a doctor believes that, I can't help change their mind. But those same doctors are now pushing. Um, costly, unnecessary injections on their patients, or they've morphed into a recovery center and they're they're doling out Suboxone too much, in my opinion, or they're trying to sell their patient a brand new shiny $150,000 spinal stimulator. So those doctors who believe the opioid crisis was caused by the fifth vital sign, they too are profiting off the backs of both pain patients and addicts. And what is that fifth vital sign? Just to clarify. Pain. Okay. Pain. Pain. In other words, you know, you got your blood pressure pulse and then pain. Does everybody know who was behind that? No. Who got that drop from the Joint Commission? Who was it? Andrew Colony, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Should have known. So there's you know, nothing wrong with the. Uh, this was a. This, I hate to be a, uh, you know, conspiracy theorist, but this was a. This was an early plot by um, Dr. Colony to get rid of people on opiates, being that he believes everyone who takes them is addicted. So if you get off of them, you're no longer addicted, and that's what he believes. And he has been pushing that agenda. It's more what he believes deep down inside than anything else. As a patient and advocate um, in this for many years, the way I see it is, so when the CDC guidelines came out, uh, primary care physicians became scared. So all uh, people that are in pain had to start going to pain management doctors. So now you have them grouped. Then I felt now I feel like what's happening is is there's becoming less and less of them, uh, either because they're being scared, or their license are being taken away, or they're going to jail because of it all. And um, I feel like what's happening is is they want us to eventually kind of all go into almost addiction rehab places because that's where their money is, and then also be on Suboxone and buprenorphine. Um, that's somebody that is looking from the outside or well inside and outside in 
I feel like that's what's going on. Does anybody like see Hello. that? Oh, it's, yes, it's, you're right. It's true. <laughs> it's become yeah. a nine-headed hydra. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Can it's I just, hard to discuss it because it's just so, you know, nine heads. You know, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to, to see because I think I heard there. I mean, there's tens of millions of people on pain medications for pain, right? You're talking about 800,000 addicts. But then, I mean, many more times that just using these drugs for pain, right? I mean, it's... Well, there's actually, there's 10 million people taking them daily, but there's 96 million people getting opiate prescriptions every year. Wow. So you got 96 million people taking these drugs for, you know, pain, uh, you know, what they've injured, fallen down or whatever, after surgery, surgery, you know, um, know, blah, blah. So 96 million people take these medicines and there's about 1 million addicted. So that's one in a hundred, you know, as, right. you know, so if, wow. if you could become addicted to pain medicines, then there ought to be a lot more. Where are they? You know, I mean, with all these high numbers, 96 million people, there's 250 million prescriptions, 96 million people. At least half the population should be out shooting up behind dumpsters. But there's no more than there was in 1920. So where's the failure in the logic? And that's where we have our friend Socrates. Because Socrates taught us uh, Western philosophy. What Western philosophy is, is the search for truth. Philosophical societies used to be about science, searching for the truth. So how do you search for the truth? Well, you just keep asking questions. So the CDC announced they got 40,000 people a year dying. What's the next question? If I said there's 3,200 people dying up there in Wyoming, what would be the next question? Who are they? So who are they? They are people dying in the streets. Mm -hmm. That's who they are. Well, 40,000 of them. And that's pretty horrible because that means we are not treating our addicts. They're all dying in the street. Well, 40,000. If something happens to me, though, if something happened to me uh, and like I passed away, I'm concerned that they would say it was either an overdose death because I'm on pain medication. Like that seems like their first thing that they go to because I had seizures uh, starting in October and uh, my family called the. EMTs to go to the emergency room because I never had one before. And they gave me two rounds of Narcan because they thought I was having an overdose when I was in a seizure. They had my pain, my medicine and everything. Right. They counted it. They realized I didn't even take it that morning. And then the second time I had it, uh, uh, the ambulance guy shook the bottle and said, oops, it sounds like there's some missing. So she's definitely having an overdose. But they wouldn't allow them to give me Narcan this time. But, I mean, it's a real shame how patients are treated. It's pervasive. We are at the bottom of the well. And it's going to be very, very difficult to reverse this. But if you don't try, it's not going to get reversed, you know. So one of the things that um, I've got up here on my little telephone where my entire world is, Uh, This is the AMA letter, and this is what it says about tapering. Before starting therapy, clinicians should establish treatment goals with all patients. Yeah, is your pain better? (laughs) 
including realistic goals for pain and function, should consider how therapy will be discontinued. That's what the CDC wrote. Determine how it's going to be discontinued. That was crossed out. And the AMA put in there adjusted, including the potential for tapering and or discontinuation. Now you got to kiss ass. Uh, if benefits do not outweigh the risks. So if somebody's having an allergic reaction, yeah, you taper it off. Uh, clinicians should continue the opioid therapy only if there is a clinically meaningful, okay, it's working, the drug is working, continue. Um, achieving treatment goals for improving and maintaining levels. This is, this is, all, this is all indicative that people are afraid of this drug. These drugs are no different than any other FDA drug. They have warnings on 600 drugs. There are 600 drugs with warnings. Uh, but it's all this kind of uh, apologetic language that I find interesting. Um, you know, this could be said in a couple of words. You know, you treat like any, like uh, Dr. Feldman said, you just you treat like any other medicine. Here's other side effects. Be careful. Let me know how it works. If it doesn't work, I'll taper you off. Uh, on tapering, the CDC also stated if patients on high opioid doses are unable to taper despite worsening pain and or function with opioids, whether or not opioid uh, use disorder uh, criteria are met, consider transition to buprenorphine. Good Lord. Why would they suggest that? This is the, yeah. By the way, there's That's a tenth, on website. Yeah, there's a Tenth Amendment, and it says the federal government cannot step into issues that the state's take, and guess what? The practice of medicine is at the state level. Right. Oh, wait, I'm wait, 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 wait. Let, 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 me, let me chime in there. Hey, do you <laughs> think that the state is on your side? No. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with jurisdiction. It has everything to do with it. Let me tell you what happened. You know, I've been doing this longer than anybody in this room, okay? And I'm going to tell you this. I've had DEA agents in my office. We're talking about five years ago. And they said, well, you know, we're just here for a routine inspection. And I said, well, get the hell out of here because you don't have a fucking warrant, right? Because I'm a firm believer that, you know, what's mine is mine and it doesn't belong to the government. But that has changed. So I can tell you about a doctor in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, that had the same thing happen to him, except 18 of them came in with machine guns and laser pointers and they put it to his head and forced him on the floor. So what I'm saying to you is a meeting happened. I don't know where it happened and I don't know who was there, but they decided that doctors are expendable and we are going to get the bulk of the money that goes to opiates and we're going to transfer it to other places. That's and right. one of those places is the, the buprenorphine manufacturers. And I mean, can you think of a, 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 another guideline which recommends a proprietary drug? that a doctor must use. Now, it, it's like saying, you know, if a patient is not doing well on diet modification, we should put them on Lilly brand insulin only. That's the equivalent. <laughs> well, of will you explain that? What's the, what's the buprenorphine? Uh, that, is is that? A, that is a, a, a more modern methadone, you know, for, okay. for those that are not. So it's a medication-assisted treatment. It's an opiate substitute that once you get on it, you're essentially on it for life. So think about this. You're the manufacturer, and we take 96 million Americans that Dr. Klein uh, uh, told us about a minute ago. We put them all on a drug manufacturer's drug that they're going to be on on a monthly prescription for the rest of their lives. Do the math. It's billions and billions and billions of dollars. Right. So what did I say earlier? 
we're going to take the money that the Purdue family made and we're going to take it. And the vehicle is going to be these patients. Let me um, ask something. Because uh, yeah, the ahead. FDA yeah. is the only uh, place that should be able to say anything about these medications. Why have they not spoken up? Why have they not said anything? Like the uh, AMA. Uh, I don't I have some insiders in Washington. Uh, it's kind of like you don't yell at your neighbor's dog. <laughs> Yeah. You know, in other words, agencies never criticize other agencies. They feel that that's the job of the boss who's the president. Um, it's kind of like you got a bunch of children, you know, and the children are all saying, yeah, what, look what he's doing. No, you can't do that. But I can tell you that the FDA is on our side and we have been offered um, that if we send in uh, basically, adverse drug reaction reports, which would be a report because people are tapered, they'll count them. So we're going to have an estimate of the number of people. We have three studies to show that about 75% of people have been cut off. We know there's 10 million. Do the math. Um, and also, one of the things we're going to try to do um, with, these, with this 12-page um, document is to make a copy of the highlighted sections like the one we just read and then we're going to put it on our new website we're trying to form a new organization called the national pain council uh, as soon as it gets through the north carolina um, llc's uh, certification and it's going to be people can join it as as affiliates they can join as members uh, there's no fees. It's basically a way to get everybody together. So one of the things that like we're going to offer on the website is we're going to make a copy of the 12-page letter, and we're going to highlight sections and, and make it so it comes through when you print it. And then people can make copies of those, and they can send them to their doctors. And a little trick, having run an office, if you get something in the mail, you're going to put it in the chart. If I hand somebody a document when I'm in there visiting, they can just throw it in the garbage. So the trick is to get everybody to, in a safe space, to, you know, doctors get eight minutes and you're handing them this 12-page letter. But the, if you do that, they'll actually read it privately when they're not in front of you losing face. So we're going to try to do that. We're going to try to actually do some things. Right now, the biggest thing we have is this AMA 12-page letter because it just says it. And one of our members, Jen Bartell, has made a little synopsis of all the quotes. You know, if you want to attack something, you use other people's language. Then they can't say a word. Andrew Kolodny and Thomas Frieden, who was running the CDC, made the same statements to the press independently. Yeah. Pain like pills heroin are heroin pills. pills. Exactly. So right away, you know, that's just what they said. You know, you don't have to say these are bad boys or they're in bed together or they're, you know, trying to pull some some uh, scam where everybody's going to make a lot of money. You just just say that. Let people decide for themselves. So, you know, this tapering thing is very, very um, is very is very malicious and pernicious. One of the things that we never do in medicine is undertreat people. That's always negligent. If, if a person needs 10 radiation treatments, you know, for their cancer, and, and I say, well, you know, you only need four, that's under treatment. 
if I don't want to give a whole lot of insulin, so the person's blood sugar is 900 all the time, that's under treatment. And that's something that you can send to the board. Our board in North Carolina has made it very clear that people, doctors who are under treating are going to end up appearing before the board. There's a case up in New Hampshire. Some doctor was just fined. Uh, so we need more of those. So we're advising our patients to go online. These uh, medical societies are going to be complaints. That's how they start processes against doctors. They take complaints and investigate them. And so if you put a complaint in that you're being undertreated for any disease, they're going to look at it. So if people are following a CDC guideline, it doesn't matter at the state level because you're undertreating people. Plus, believe it or not, if you read the 50-page CDC guideline, which I've attempted to do, it is so dense. I don't think there's anybody on this planet that's actually going through it, and I'm still working on it. It never actually says 90 milligrams for chronic patients. All it says is, if you're going over 90 milligrams, be careful. So it's not actually in there. They also do, they, they say they do not recommend tapering. But if you do a word search on the CDC guidelines, the word tapers in there 42 times. In my Goodman and Gilman book on pharmacology, it's in there once. So you can see right through all the smokescreen. And they have definitely been trying to get people. And Andrew Kolodny and Dr. Lem Lemke at Stanford both made public statements that said people should be forced off their opiates. Never in the history of the United States have we ever had a medicine that people were forced off. Yes, there are medicines the FDA pulls, but you're not forced off. You know, you, you just your doctor tells you, look, this is bad stuff. Just kind of, you know, don't take it anymore. Taper it down, but not forced off. I mean, that's horrible. I have some questions about because um, the CDC guidelines are going to be revamped in 2021. Um, I know Dr. Beth Darnell, she's a Stanford uh, pain psychologist. I believe she's one of the stockholders or people on the board. I believe Kate Nicholson and there's a bunch of others. But she calls forced tapering a large-scale social and medical experiment being conducted without sufficient evidence on how to do it the right way. Do you agree with this statement? Um, I mean, is there a right way or reason to even be tapering patients? And do you think like the 2021 20, guidelines are going to help patients at all or uh, make it more uh, clear for doctors? You, you, you said something, okay, that I think you, you, you must distinguish. This, has, this is very important up front. And it goes to your philosophy of, of humanity. There's not a patient that I couldn't get off of pain medication if I worked hard enough at it. There wasn't one. They might have objected. They might have felt terrible. So you must ask yourself the following question. Is somebody in pain worth treating? And if you can't answer that question, yes or no, then those people could give a rat's ass about how you taper patients. And so the point of the matter is this, is forced tapering appropriate? Well, it's appropriate under, you know, three, three instances. Number one, the, patient, the medication is having a significant side effects. Number two, the medication 
is is being diverted to the street, or number three, the patient can't follow directions. Those are some reasons to force tape for somebody. But to force tape for somebody that's doing well, is that ever indicated? Only with the consent of the patient. But then I said, there's other forces here. It's not just Dr. Klein and me and the patients. There's DEA agents and there's and there's Justice Department and there's FBI and there's medical boards and there's Internal Revenue Service and there's state, state attorney generals filing lawsuits. There's all these outside factors that be, come to bear on should we force take for a patient. Um, in my medical practice, um, when people are on long-term medications, um, I suggest that they, on their own, taper them once a year. Uh, for example, high blood pressure medicine, you can taper it once a year. And they found out that 15%, not huge, but 15% of people didn't need it anymore. So I tell patients on their pain medicines to, on your own, taper down and make sure you still need this much uh, or make sure you don't you need it at all. We did a, um, a poll at JATH, J-A-T-H, our educational consortium. And we asked people about tapering and how, how it, it appears about 10% of people are on opiates who don't need them. Um, so there is a reason to taper, but it doesn't need to be forced. You can just tell people to give it a try. And if their pain returns, uh, then they need that particular dose. Also, it rules out hyperalgesia, which I don't think exists. But if you drop the medicine and your pain improves, you have hyperalgesia. So but people ought to do that on their own. And What is the correct way to taper a patient? Like, how do you do that? Well, the CDC suggests 10% a week minimum or 10% a month. Um, and, you know, pharmacists are cutting people off and violating that right and left. Uh, that's just negligence. I mean, you take somebody suddenly off, they can die. And they're being taken off their benzodiazepines. Uh, so tapering is not just saying you're not going to get any more. That's about 10%. It should be at minimum of 10% a week. Claudia, how? I mean, because we deal with patients and we're patients. How? What? How have patients been tapered, or what have they told you? Like, how is it done? Janelle, a man had his hand amputated yesterday, and they were sending him home with no pain medication, and that was the first call of the day. So this is where we are. And whenever Dr. Feldman and I get on the phone with the patient, they're usually crying. There hasn't been, a lot of people weren't tapered. I think people were only tapered after the FDA put out that clarification. Oh, by the way, make sure you uh, taper your patient because they could blow their head off, but it's not our, you know, it's not our fault. So we're now advocating for people who are having limbs chopped off. And I spoke with, um, I accompanied somebody to their pain management visit and this very young, sweet nurse practitioner, she said, you know, we're in the middle of an opioid crisis. And I looked at her and, you know, I have to keep the peace when I'm in the room with a patient and a doctor. And I said, yes, dear, we are definitely in the middle of a crisis. But in the state of Rhode Island, guess how many people overdosed in 2019 on 
prescription medication prescribed to that individual, zero. Not one person in my state of Rhode Island overdosed on pain medication. It's actually hard. It's actually hard to find um, people who have overdosed on prescription pain medication. Now, when we add some illicit, you know, some heroin and cocaine and fentanyl, well, now we've got a party and we have a successful overdose. So by the time patients come to us, they're distraught. They've already been cut off of their pain medication. You know, they're on over a hundred morphine equipped MMEs daily and their doctor's like, well, I'm going to take you down to 30. And that's not a slow taper. I don't like the word taper unless it's used for, you know, when I've got Crohn's disease, I would be tapered off of my prednisone, but a forced taper on with opioids with no consent, that's not a taper. That's, that's an attack. Well, so, what do patients uh, go through mentally and physically when they are being tapered? Oh, I mean, you kind of touched on it. Oh, it's a constant. The, the life of a pain patient every four weeks consists of the following. You white knuckle it driving like this to your pain pain management visit, wondering, is today the day that I'm cut off? Now, Andrew Kolodny and the others from Prop would say, well, that behavior is indicative of an addict. That behavior is not indicative of an addict. That behavior is indicative of a person who's been suffering for a very long time with pain and is today the day that I lose my medication. And after they leave there, if they've, you know, if their doctor's still their doctor when you drive to the pharmacy that's when you know you're in for a real treat because that's where you'll be wholeheartedly discriminated by the pharmacist and if your pharmacist is if you're fortunate enough to have a pharmacist fill your script chances are they're going to tamper with the with the script they're going to lower the dose uh, because they too have been terrorized by the DEA. But if you're able to maintain your doctor, find a pharmacy who's willing to fill your script, chances are Blue Cross, uh, United Health, they're not going to cover it. This was a well thought out plan. Yeah, yeah, this was a well thought out plan. They, they covered all their bases. And Dr. Feldman said this there was a meeting. And there, there's not a lot of people involved. I call this the greatest Ponzi scheme of all time because so many, there's not a lot of people, maybe 200 people. It's the same 200 people. And they're making a fortune profiting off of these poor people. I mean, I shouldn't be getting called in for a person who had their hands removed. And I shouldn't be called in for a woman who had her breast removed. So it's bad. We're in, we have officially bottomed out as a country, but what's more, you know, what's really offensive to me is when a doctor said, well, no, I don't, you know, I don't believe in prescribing um, opioids for pain, but I'm happy to prescribe you Suboxone. Suboxone. That's really, really. What about, and you know, we're going to see a lot of class action lawsuits because people are losing their teeth from Belbuca, from Suboxone. It goes in the mouth and it's rotting the teeth out. And I am happy to spearhead any lawsuit because these people should be held accountable. So Indivier is, is guilty of what, uh, what J&J was convicted of doing. Indivier just took their place. We just swapped seats. And now Indivier is rolling in the money and nobody ever discusses the largest opioid 
uh, settlement in history, and that's in Divier. Nobody cares because it doesn't go along with the false narrative. What the media has done, they've caused irreparable harm. They have flaked. They have polluted the country into believing we're in the middle of an opioid crisis because, believe it or not, I get phone calls from people telling me, my, you know, my mom doesn't want to take her pain medication because she doesn't want to get addicted. So, you know, I said, well, look at it this way. You know, how many people in your family have had surgery and how many have had opiates and how many are now IV heroin users? Look at it that way. Well, no one. Okay. Chances are your grandmother, your mother, your father, your cousin, they're not going to get addicted, but the media has caused irreparable harm. But the media, prop, Shatterproof, Pacera Pharmaceuticals, but, uh, Rockmart Hope, um, Narx Care, Apris, they've okay. all, the, the DEA, the DOJ, they all work in tandem and they're all getting, they're all making money off the backs. And I'm going to say this too, because this is daring. This country has no, has no interest in helping addiction. This country has one goal, maintaining addiction. Because when you go on Suboxone, you ain't coming off of that drug. And I call those lifers. You're on that for life because watching a person get off Suboxone is just as bad as watching an alcoholic go through withdrawals. It is painful and it's not happening. And we're living in a country with walking antidepressed Suboxonites. Here, have some Suboxone. Where's the oversight well, for know, the Suboxone? That's right. Yeah, uh, Dr. Any. Klein and I actually a few years ago were joking around that, you know, we'll just buy a house and we'll start, we'll, we'll make it for people that have addiction because there isn't, there's no rules. Dr. Klein, do you want to talk more about it? Because I know you know a lot more. Yeah, the, uh, when a judge sends somebody off to 90 days of rehab, the uh, rehab costs $1,000 a day. Big business. Yeah. And none of the rehabs are certified or licensed. They do whatever they want. Nice business. thousand bucks a day, do whatever you want. We had uh, an outfit here in North Carolina that was renting out their their (laughs) heroin addicts to a nursing home, and they were cleaning up and stuff, and the nursing home was paying these people, you know, for these slaves. And so the Department of Public Health here rushed over there and investigated, and they said, oh, crap, we don't have any regulations. Do whatever you want. <laughs> well, I, Nine-headed hydro. <laughs> right. I mean, I'd like to just clarify what – so there's all this financial incentive. The financial incentive is basically in the rehab business because people are giving uh, sort of these morphine substitutes like Suboxone. So that's big money, and these rehab places are big money. So the more they can fabricate and frighten people about this whole addiction thing and say that anybody that, that is taking an opioid d- daily will become an addict or is an addict um, – the more that they can sort of almost fabricate this rehab industry that then is making these people extremely wealthy. Is that the gist of it? That's the gist of it. And you know that these organizations that organize the rehab also support the police department. Right. Because they're the ones out there rounding up the business for them at $1,000 a day. You know? Yeah, the whole rehab rehab business, um, I talk to some addicts, which nobody ever does. And um, I said, what's kind of the ideal place? And he said, well, first of all, you got to have addicts running it. And he said, two, there needs to be choice. 
uh, of different kinds of programs. Um, you can use MAT, medication-assisted treatment. You don't have to. You can use other things. You use prayer. You can use getting beat up. You can use kindness. There's all kinds of approaches. And if you had a licensed uh, rehab facility, they should be offered all those. And then they should be responsible for their, if they're going to give them medicine, they should be responsible for at least one year, making sure they get it because they, they leave and they can't afford the $400 a month for some suboxone. So they stop taking it and then they shoot heroin and die. Well, that's, and that's my second question on all of this is that when somebody gets forced tapered, well, what are the odds that they're just going to go to the street to get the rest of what they need? And then, well, that's a very high probability, and the street is kind of learning that. They're now putting on ties and stuff, and they're right. selling they're selling the you know pills for thirty dollars a piece. I do know one patient who was in business. She had a rare painful disease. She went ten years without treatment, um, and finally had surgery and got it fixed. But they mortgaged their home and business to to go to the streets and buy um, huh. suboxone, not suboxone, uh, uh, oxycodone. Right. I also know people uh, that are growing their own poppies in their house and sure. uh, wow. to be able to use. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different things that are going on huh. and, then the, and what patients are being forced to do because they just want to be able to be out of pain, to be able to eat, sleep, you know, and just be normal if, you know, whatever normal is. But yeah, it's a reasonable right. thing to want. <laughs> right. That's why everybody goes to doctors and therapists. And I mean, you know, kind of well, rather be normal. And and then I guess. No. Just, oh, sorry. Well, I wanted you, to say, I'm sorry. I, I think you, maybe you can even add to add to this if you finish my question, because you, you'd mentioned it before and then, and then say what you'd like to say as well. But um, when you do hit the street, of course, that's when you're going to get fentanyl laced product. And that's when the overdose, because you mentioned, Claudia, nobody's overdosing from pills that they're using that are prescribed by the doctor. This is a pretty safe way of dealing with pain management. But when, say, you're suddenly you're forced tapered, maybe you're cut off, maybe you're cut in half right away, and um, you know you're gonna you're gonna go through some kind of detox if you don't. So you hit the street, and the next thing you know, you get some kind of dirty drug. That's when the overdoses happen, right? I mean, this is. Yeah, overdoses, actually, no one overdoses from the narcotic. No, no, that's kind of an astounding thing to say. It's always multi-drug. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, polymorphine. We're, we're okay. kind of looking at that right now, that if you're only um, like a prescription um, opiate and nothing else, yeah, like Claudia said, you're probably not going to have any deaths. We're only estimating 500 deaths a year in the United States from just prescription opiates. Um, all the people dying are on the street. Somebody needs to ask the CDC about that, you know? Uh, everybody's dying on the street. And so why are they dying on the street? Because they're getting illegal drugs. Why are they getting illegal drugs? Because we are not giving them treatment. Right. Because we don't want to give dope to dopers. <laughs> the 800,000 of them. Well, no, uh, I wanted to say I advocated for um, a person with addiction because we have started to do that. And this man, he was very honest because sometimes addicts aren't so honest. And he was honest. He says, you know, I, um, I get my Suboxone and I use on alternating days. He's like, you know, I shoot up. I use heroin. But the Suboxone helps me, you know, not get sick. Well, and he, right, because he's just trying not to be sick anymore, right? right. They're not looking oh, to be yeah. high at that point. 
Well, they don't, nobody wants to be dope sick. It's a, it's a miserable existence, I would imagine. But I'm, I said, ex- correct me if I'm wrong. I said, you get to go and he walks right in treatment whenever he needs to. And here's my other problem with Suboxone, the script writers of Suboxone. There's no therapy. And Matt is only successful with a plan. And it's not, here's your script, have a great day. And, you know, doctors need to be Suboxone certified, but there's scripts. These scripts go out left and right. Suboxone is the highly, one of the most diverted medications there is. And Andrew Kolodny said, I don't care if it's diverted. It's the, it's a wonderful drug. We have a quote. We actually have a YouTube video of him and prop members saying buprenorphine only for pain. And that's their goal for acute pain, for chronic pain. You only get buprenorphine. Why well, and is Suboxone, that? Suboxone is the number one traded drug in prisons right now too. Oh, I mean, yeah. yeah. It's number, drug, number one drug on the street because yep. what uh, a lot of people don't know about heroin that's different than pain patients is when you're due for your next dose of heroin, you're already deep into withdrawal. You withdraw between doses. And, you know, if somebody's on oxycodone and it's, you know, four hours and it goes to six hours, you're going to get a little pain and you're going to get a little nudgy, but you're not going to drop into some horrible uh, withdrawal. And that's why heroin addicts don't like heroin. They really don't. If they could get their hands on some OxyContin, as one one heroin addict I talked to did, he and his buddy went out and paid for OxyContin, but it was uh, 240 bucks a day. And they liked it, and they would rather do that, but the heroin's 50 bucks a day. Hmm. So, and these people don't have sources of income. Yeah, they steal and stuff like that, but that's it's pretty hard to have a decent income, you know, stealing stuff from stores. Well, you so know, we need to learn more about, we need to clean up the addiction problem first. And a lot of people with pain don't like that, but they're hooked together. Uh, something with tapering also that nobody's talking about is the other side of, of once you go through your withdrawal or, I mean, cause you're going to go through minor withdrawals, even if you taper down. But once you're past that, we all still have pain. We still all still have our, our, our right. rare, painful, horrible diseases that we're living with the rest of our lives. What are we supposed to do? Where does the yeah. pain go? I always said that. Where does the pain go when, um, when you're tapered? Does the pain mysteriously disappear? It's right. so insult. I mean, I just think it's, su- it's such an insult. It's insulting. And, and it's the attack on women with pain. Right, Dr. Feldman, maybe we advocate for 30%, but 70% of the people we advocate for are women. Hmm. And I feel like we're, you know, the attack on the the woman and, you know, we pain catastrophize. Well, what happens to our pain once we stop on medication? If I stopped my, my Remicade and my Methotrexate, I would get very sick and I would probably have to have another colostomy bag. But what happens to your CRPS pain, CRPS pain after you've been tapered? Does your pain diminish like Anna Lemke suggested it would because your receptors need to get back into check? I mean, that's the, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard of in my life. And I'm not a doctor, but I know pain doesn't magically disappear. Doctors have you know, bought into the opioid induced yeah. hyperalgesia. And for a long time, I couldn't say it without laughing because I said, 
what it what is that because we've not advocated i've i've yet to receive the phone call claudia dr Feldman, can you help me my opioids are making my pain worse can't even never even had that phone call it's lunacy there's no such thing but you get you get a whole bunch of psychiatrists together and they're going to really discuss opioid induced hyperalgesia there's no such thing Follow the money. It's money, money, money. Take out the doctor, leave the patient as collateral damage, turn all the pain management centers into recovery centers, and now and now we're going to make a whole lot of money. Forget about Purdue. Oh, no, no. Purdue. They're going to milk them. Who, who else is there left to attack? We've attacked the doctor. We've attacked the patient. We've attacked the pharmacist. Insurance we, we companies. We've cut down opioid manufacturing. Distributors. When, distributors. When you take 30 million people, when you target a large population with malice, and your goal is to erase them off of planet Earth, that's called a genocide. And we are in a pain patient genocide. Well, and Kalodney basically said that. He, he said, you know, we're, we're going to have to wait till this generation dies off. Dies off. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's right. terrible. Oh, yeah. and what did he say about uh, black people, Claudia? Oh, I yes. know it drove you nuts. Yeah. In 2017, in an NPR article, Andrew Kolodny said, well, we've actually done the black community a favor. We've actually spared them addiction by not giving them the medication they need. And, he, you know, Andrew Kolodny is of the mindset that black people's pain isn't as severe as the white person. He is a disgusting he is a disgusting, vile, bigot, racist. He hates everybody except the makers of buprenorphine. That's what it boils down to. And Brandeis continues to keep him on staff. With we're, we're living in systemic racism. Brandeis doesn't care. You know why? Because Brandeis, Kolodny is their cash cow. There's millions Money. of dollars being funneled through Brandeis. They don't, but we're, we're protesting we have the Kolodny Kills Rally set up for Monday right outside of Brandeis. <laughs> um, folks, you. I've got to leave uh, in about two minutes. So Okay. Well, I, I just wanted to ask you, Dr. Klein, quickly. Uh, could you just please talk to us a little bit about JATH and National Pain Council? Uh, I could. Yeah, we, um, we formed a little group called JATH, JATH, Educational Consortium, and it's a group of volunteers, um, and we all try to tell the truth. Find facts, tell the truth. And then some folks uh, suggested that we need a national pain organization, which I support. And uh, so we got the name National Pain Council. And so a lot of people are working on that. Um, I'm going to become a member with JAF. And uh, the idea is to get as many groups as possible under this umbrella. And then the groups can use it like the good housekeeping seal of approval. The groups can say, hey, I'm part of National Pain Council. What the Pain Council would actually do is very little. Uh, would If it came to try and get some legislation passed, then the Pain Council could go to Washington. You can't go to Washington unless you have a national organization, period. Right. And then we could hire lobbyists, $30,000 a month. If you want legislation, you have to pay for it. That's the way it works. And so we do have a bead on a lawyer who can find us. So, you know, I mean, if you had 100,000 people, I mean, there's 6 million people being screwed, you know. So everybody chipped in five bucks. 
we'd have enough maybe to get through three or four months of, of um, you know, hiring a lobbyist. Yep. So, and, uh, you know, yeah. the National Paint Council website will be up shortly, too. So you'll be able to go to it. I believe it's going to be nationalpaintcouncil.org when it's ready. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Klein. Good evening. Yep. Thanks <laughs> for coming evening. on. All righty. Bye-bye. Uh, Claudia and Dr. Feldman, uh, first of all, did you guys want to say anything else before we, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, uh, your rallies and the GoFundMe's, but, um, did you have anything else you wanted to say before we started that about tapers or anything else we discussed? I don't. You know, guys, it's raining. so hard where I am. I can Wow. I can hear the rain. <laughs> I can finish up for Dr. Phil. Okay. All right. Okay. I All right. Uh, Cla- uh, Claudia, could you please tell us a little bit about Don't Punish Pain Rallies? I know October 7th and some of them are other dates. Ours is October 8th for uh, North yes. Carolina. Uh, could you explain yeah. a little bit about what's going on with that? And- sure. So I organize these rallies every three or four months for pain patients to get out there, to be seen, to be heard, to speak with the media. And this will be my last rally I'm organizing because we will have a presence in Washington, uh, the doctor patient forum, the don't punish pain rally effective 2021. So this rally, um, we were canceled in March because of COVID. Uh, So I'm hoping that this rally will be a success. Uh, The CDC guidelines are being rewritten next year, 2021. I interviewed Beth Darnell. We discussed this. But I don't, I actually have fears that the guidelines could be rewritten more stringently. And I found with um, a movement, you know, it doesn't, it takes thousands and thousands of people. And I started, you know, I started with three members. I have over 15,000. I'm on all social media platforms and you have to get out there and you have to be visible. And, you know, I preach this to the pain community and, you know, they say, well, I'm in pain. I can't, but you have to do it for one hour. You just have to do it. And I yeah. sound like the Nike commercial. There's no other, there's no easy way because this is a bipartisan issue. Everybody hates opioids and it's up to the reason I got involved with this is because I hated how uh, people like prop that organization, how they, embellished about what a pain sufferer looks like. And, you know, they use the term lazy, malingering, pain sinking. And I said, I'm a lot of things, but I ain't lazy. (laughs) So I, you know, I, you know, I tell people this is the face of a person who, when I need opioids, I take opioids and I keep it moving. But I train seven days a week at a gym. I compete in fitness shows. I'm an author. I'm a retired court reporter and I'm a mama. So I'm a lot of things, but I ain't lazy. And the fact that these people, these venomous individuals, put this face on the look of a pain patient was appalling to me. And that's why I created the rallies. So people get out there and protest. How do you do it? It's very simple. Visit don'tpunishpainrally.com. Click on the rallies chart. Find out where your rally is and get out there. And we're all sick. We're all hurting. But this has to be done because... Out of all the causes in the world, this is the very last cause that people are willing to fight for. And doctors really weren't born to fight. Doctors were born to heal and to help. So the burden falls on the shoulders of the patients to to fight for the doctors, to fight for the patients, to fight for justice. So don'tpunishpainrally.com. 
uh, we protest all next week, different days, different states. And the Facebook page, you can join that Don't Punish Pain Rally. And uh, it's our way of, my way of paying it forward. We don't get paid. Uh, we, I wanted to discuss the lawsuit because Dr. Fellman is in the middle of a storm. Yep. So about 18 months ago, Dr. Feldman and I started to get a, a lot of requests to advocate for people whose pharmacists wouldn't fill their scripts. And I was called in in January to advocate for this woman, Edie, and she was in Florida. And the pharmacist was so rude to me. And she says, I am not filling this script. And I said, well, what is the reason? I don't feel comfortable filling it. Well, that's not a good enough reason. I need a reason. Well, she wouldn't fill it. So Dr. Feldman noticed that he was driving 100 miles each way to get his wife, Linda, who's also a chronic pain patient, couldn't find a pharmacy to fill the script. And Dr. Feldman's wife was told, when I first heard it, I said, this can't be right. They said, well, we'll fill your script, but you have to get some other things. Huh? What do you mean other things? You have to get some non-opioid scripts. What do you mean non-opioid scripts? I only need this script filled. Put it this way. It's like when your kid gets an air infection and you've got to get the pink stuff. So you're like, oh, here you go, Mr. Pharmacist, Mrs. Pharmacist. I need my kids amoxicillin. Well, I can fill it, but you need to buy some candy. I don't want candy. Well, you need to buy band-aids. I don't need band-aids. How about some laxatives? I don't need laxatives. I need my medication. Nope, not doing it. It's a form of racketeering. So this is where we are. Dr. Feldman gets, picks up the phone. He's a little like I am. He's Jewish. I'm Italian. Together, we're a nice combination. <laughs> he gets on the phone. Lawyers were, were reluctant. Oh, no. Guess what? Today, there's not one law firm. There's a class action lawsuit filed against CBS in Rhode Island, Walgreens out of California, and I believe Costco. And we're waiting. Uh, the class has not been approved, but it's just the beginning. This is the floodgates will open if this class gets certified by the judge. And it's, um, I think this will put the issue on the map. And uh, you'll see me tweet, this country only responds to litigation, litigation they shall have. So I said, Dr. Film is like, you know what? And he said this from the day, day one when I first started work when we first started working he said Andrew Kolodny needs to be held accountable he's the thought leader behind this and this goes back to 2005 so Dr. Feldman a few weeks ago created a GoFundMe because lawyers are costly and we've raised $10,000 with the GoFundMe we've got $90,000 to go because a, a reasonable lawyer probably wants a $100,000 retainer and we're suing Andrew Kolodny and others for their part in the pain patient genocide. And just like other doctors have been sued before for being thought leaders behind the opioid crisis, these people need to be sued for what they've done. The pain patient genocide is a much greater issue than the opioid crisis, much greater. And that we have something that nobody else has, no other cause has. We've got the numbers, we've got 30 million people. So the GoFundMe is all over social media. You can find it on the Don't Punish Pain Rally page on my Twitter at CMorandi. We've got that, and we've already had a few successful meetings with law firms who are interested. Lawyers are now ready to hear because lawyers have been affected. Lawmakers have been affected. I get phone calls from my lawmakers. Oh, my mom can't get her script filled. 
Why do you think she can't get her script filled? Because you and your infinite wisdom passed a really bad bill one Wednesday night. So That's right. But they don't seem to notice it until something like that happens. You know? oh, they just oh, don't get yes. it. Oh, no. And one of my very first interviews, this man, and he's in recovery, and he, he's a senator. He said, let me tell you, Claudia, it doesn't matter until it happens to them. And I really, you know, time... Nobody like, I'm not patient, but I knew with my legislation, I knew I needed to be patient. I knew I needed to wait as sick as it sounds for someone to get screwed over like the rest of the people are. So they're being screwed over and now they want justice. And I think this Kolodny lawsuit will, you know, Dr. Fellman has said it, you know, there's three ways this lawsuit can go. It can get dismissed. We can win, we can lose, but he still has to respond. He's got to go in his wallet, and that's what we want to hit them in their wallet. That's now great. Now you're going to pay for your legal. Can I, can I say? Can I say something? Of course. <laughs> no society, no society that starts treating their citizens like we're treating the pain community will survive for long. This is the okay. end of America. This, when you when when your mother becomes disposable, when you can put a knife on somebody and send them out of the hospital with no care, no pain medicine, and no thought. That's the problem. When you make your doctors operate on people and prescribe no pain medicine, like like Joseph Mengele in, in Nazi Germany, we are in Doug, we are in a state that I in my 65 years have never seen this society. And I went through the Vietnam War and I saw all that horrible shit going on and protests and this and that. But you see, in the 80s, everybody took a job working on Wall Street and everybody just started getting interested in personal gain and no sacrifice. Well, you know, I have never been that way. But you know, what, what Dr. Klein, I think, has missed is this, is that no licensed doctor Will no licensed doctor will put his or her name on, on anything for fear of retribution. That's you understand right. that because yeah. the medical boards are puppets of the DEA, and yeah. until this, until the AMA does more than write a letter, but that letter was a great advance. But remember, AMA uh, uh, changes or officers every year, uh-huh. and we have got to keep this. We have got to keep their interest. And so what I say is this, is that, you know, a lawyer told me a long time ago, you ever hear the saying, save your money for a rainy day? You ever heard that? Your mama told you that? Guess what? It's raining. Cats and dogs. (laughs) So bottom line is the three of us here, and Doug too, and Dr. Klein, we're, we're trying to alarm. Now, we have got to get some plans, and I got news for you. You know, shaking hands and, and agreeing is not going to happen. They're only going to accept this when we ram it down their throats like they rammed those guidelines down the throats of 30 million or more suffering people. So that's that's what I have to say. And everybody's, oh, Arnold, Arnold, nothing. Any one of us can become a chronic pain patient at any time. That's right. And you know that. You know that. Yeah. Well, within the last hour, I mean, we tried to summarize the last how many years of patient harms due to tapers and forced tapers. And unfortunately, despite all the info we covered, we really haven't even scratched the surface of the devastation caused by these tapers. And it's not just to patients, it's to doctors, it's to, I mean, it's just across the board. And like the dangerous narrative that has uh, uh, infiltrated the media and, and the public. 
And that's why it's important to go to Don't Punish Pain rallies, uh, join uh, the National Pain Council, uh, uh, give money to the GoFundMes. Even if you give a dollar, five dollars, I mean, if all of us did that, it will add up. Uh, but we all need to do our part in helping this community because if we don't, nothing will change. Well, listen, uh, God bless you for doing this. Claudia works like a Trojan. Doug, thank you. Dr. Klein, uh, you know, I I have been a bit of a casualty in this war. Uh, uh, but, 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 you know, I can't. I can't just, you know, wave my own flag. This is a flag of many people, millions. And so that's my new job is taking care of millions of people. That's how I look at the rest of my, my life. So anyway, that's a Louisiana senator calling me. So maybe okay, we'll get something <laughs> done. Yeah. I doubt it, but maybe. So I'm going to if you don't mind. Okay. okay. Thanks, Dr. Feldman. Thank you, Janelle. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Doug. Well, all right, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. That was the 19th roundtable discussion produced by Transparent Media Truth. Uh, a great conversation between myself, Janelle Elgaway, Claudia Mirandi, and Drs. Arnold Feldman and Thomas Klein uh, about what's going on uh, in terms of this tapers crisis, this forced tapering that's happening to a lot of pain management patients around the country. Uh, according to the numbers that Dr. Klein was giving out, uh, 100 million people are prescribed pain medications in the United States, 30 to 40 million of which may be chronic pain sufferers. Uh, that's a lot of people that are being affected by this crisis. Uh, the CDC is coming out with these, uh, these recommendations of very low doses, and doctors are being um, sort of pushed by the establishment to not prescribe uh, as much pain medication as many of these long-term patients really need. So uh, the blowback from the drug war is severe for a very large portion of Americans, and it's a story that you're certainly not hearing anything about on the mainstream media. So thanks for listening to this. Um, a lot of places to find uh, information uh, and uh, they're working on setting up this National Pain Council uh, so that there can be a more organized coalition to push back against what the CEDC and the DEA and these other governmental organizations uh, are doing in terms of cracking down on people who are pain sufferers. Uh, these people aren't drug addicts, like Dr. Klein mentioned. Uh, the number of, of uh, heroin addicts in the population has maintained itself at 4% since 1920. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of difference going on uh, over the course of time, and certainly the drug war has done nothing to reduce that number. So, um, you know, what we're looking at uh, is not a problem because there are more people who are in pain and who need these uh, these medications in order to assuage that pain. Uh, and there's no real reason for uh, these national organizations and agencies to be coming down so hard on such a large percentage of our population, 30 to 40 million people, uh, more than 10% of the population there uh, who require these medications for health purposes. So I um, hope you paid attention to the information that you were given there. Um, you know, this, this conversation that's not being had on the national level does remind me of so much of what the roundtable discussions have been about. Um, just these, uh, these issues that are coming up for me over and over again as I have these discussions about healthcare freedom, about the doctor-patient relationship, and about informed consent. I mean, these doctors that we're hearing from today in this conversation know their patients. They're not trying to funnel 
drugs to addicts. They're trying to make sure and they're monitoring the patients to make sure they're not getting too much or too little of the drugs that they need. And the system of healthcare that we have in the United States right now is so controlled. Uh, the CDC, the American Medical Association, and then all the way down so that the doctors uh, don't really have a lot of leeway with how to treat each patient individually, and yet your doctor is the one who knows you the best. So, I, you know, just more and more, uh, personally, I am becoming an advocate of really understanding the importance of the doctor-patient relationship, and that that's a personal relationship between you and your physician. As long as your physician is educating you and doing their job well, there really should be no influence, outside influence, uh, on the types of treatment that your doctor and you personally agree uh, to engage in for your particular set of problems. Your doctor's the only one who knows you. So these, uh, these regulations that apply to everyone across the board, um, they don't really apply to anyone. And this is a, a problem with all kinds of things. We've talked about coronavirus, of course, quite a bit on this program, but lots of other healthcare issues uh, where this is becoming a, a serious problem across the board. Doctors need to have freedom to make these choices for patients because those doctors are the only ones who knows your individual needs and your individual issues. So we just keep coming back to this. Um, for this particular issue, uh, this tapers, this forced tapering issue, uh, please think about finding out more. You can go to uh, www.don'tpunishpainrally.com to find out more about what's going on with those rallies. Uh, fairly soon here, uh, and I wanted to tell people this, there is going to be uh, a website put up, uh, nationalpaincouncil.org. They haven't gotten it up as of this recording, but hopefully that'll be up soon, so you can check and see if that's happening. Uh, until then, you need to check out uh, this email if you're looking for more information or if you're looking to donate to the cause, patientsunite14 at gmail.com, and that is with a capital P and a capital U. So just to get that across one more time, capital P, patience, capital U, unite, 14, at gmail.com, uh, and they will respond to you with more information and more information about what's going on uh, right now in terms of getting this issue in front of the legislators in Washington, D.C., where it can actually be addressed. So I just want to remind everyone that my name is Doug McKinty. Uh, my show is The Shift with Doug McKinty. You can find out more on Facebook and YouTube at The Shift with Doug McKinty. Also on the web at www.theshiftnow.com. And I am on Twitter at McKinty. And of course, I uh, want to thank Rob Rubin and all the guys at Transparent Media Truth for helping to produce this episode. Uh, you can find Rob on Twitter at transparentmed one He's also on the web at transparentmediatruth.com and, of course, the YouTube channel Transparent Media Truth. And just to reiterate one more time, uh, we are counting on all of our listeners for helping to support this program and to actually distribute this program. We're not getting a lot of action from the third-party platforms uh, given the content that we cover. So uh, if you're listening to this, please think about at least liking, uh, subscribing, uh, and um, most definitely try to share this with others so that we can spread the word. All right. Uh, thanks again for listening and uh, stay tuned for next week's episode. Looking forward to uh, continuing to produce more episodes of the Roundtable Discussions and we'll be getting that one out to you next week. Okay, thanks again. Take care.
The opinions and ideas expressed in this roundtable discussion do not necessarily reflect the views of Transparent Media Truth, but only those of the speakers participating in the discussion. Under the copyright disclaimer within Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976, allowances are made for fair use of public content for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, and research. Fair use is a use permitted by copyright statute that might otherwise be infringing. Nonprofit, educational, or personal use tips the balance in favor of fair use.